something I wanted to let you know is we are launching a thing called the Upcase Newsletter, which is a email that goes out every couple of weeks uh, from written by me and other ThoughtBotters uh, with tips for writing better Ruby. Totally focused on that. They're short. They're laser focused. All about Ruby and Rails, uh, and they don't come out too often. Uh, if you're interested in signing up, you can go to bit.ly slash upcase newsletter, all one word, drop your email in there, and then you'll start getting emails from us. And they're going to be great because they talk about like why Yell sucks and how to speed up your test suite and polymorphism versus conditionals and writing better or vimming faster and better. So uh, check that out, bit.ly slash upcase newsletter. Thanks. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with CTO Joe Ferris. Hey, Joe. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Good. So we're going to talk about some stuff, things about you, things about Haskell, things about the world. Cool. Yeah, we haven't had you on. Actually, the last time we had you on was, I think, almost three years ago. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even know we've been doing that this long. Yeah. Um, or it may have been 2000, uh, it may have been two years ago, but anyway, it's been years. It's been more than one and possibly as many as three years. Well, it's good to be back. S- yeah. It's good to have you back on. Uh, my first thing on my thing is CTO duties. <laughs> <laughs> CTO duties. CTO um, duties. Can you elaborate? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you're the CTO, uh-huh. which is a thing that you do. Yep. And, uh, suddenly we're like a hundred people or something. It's been a ride. Yeah. So, like, how many people were here when you joined? Uh, when I joined ThoughtBot? Yeah. Uh, maybe a little more than a dozen, something like that. Yeah. And you were just another Joe? I, I was the only Joe. I've always been the only Joe. Okay. I actually have a standing policy that I will naysay any person we want to hire named Joe. I do, too. We actually swelled to three Bens at one point, though. But then you killed the others. I did. I had them removed. Right. I, fe- I didn't personally kill them. Right, yeah, and you have people for that. I've got people, yeah, as you do too. Right. But so uh, now suddenly you're a CTO and there's a whole bunch of developers and they're in a whole bunch of different places and the world looks pretty different. Yeah, it's been fun. So what kind of things do you think about and set for goals and pay attention to now? Right, so I think being CTO at ThoughtBot is interesting because ThoughtBot in a way is like a company of CTOs. <laughs> like, you know, people who could if they were interested in going in a startup or founding something like they could be a CTO or a VP of engineering somewhere or like a, you know, chief design director, whatever. Mm-hmm. And everybody's expected to be able to play that role, right? So everybody should be able to talk to the clients. They should be product minded. They should be able to program. They should be able to think in terms of like whether or not their code they're writing is worth the time they're spending on it. Mm-hmm. But also we expect people to bring like innovation and leadership individually which, you know, is really, if you're going to hire a CTO, that'd be basically what you look for. Yeah. So there is a degree, and I tell people this when I'm interviewing people, there's a degree to which I am just a developer at ThoughtBot and we're all just developers. Mm -hmm. The difference is that I try to be like, you know, I try to be an example of the developer. It's useful to have somebody who spends more time a little bit out of the trenches. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to look at some of the higher level things, like what's common between projects and yep. things like that. Yep. Um, but we've tried to never have too much hierarchy, never have too much top down direction. And so it's an interesting balancing act, uh, being the CTO here. Like I don't ever want to tell people what technology to use. Mm-hmm. And you know, there, my job also isn't that different from the people 
that I'm trying to lead because like, I don't want to get too far removed from the client work. Yeah. That's interesting that you say that. And that comes through because I feel like you are a voice in the discussions that are happening and you stay on top of things, but it's not like, Oh, Joe has, Joe has spoken and mm-hmm. thus the debate is over or something. Uh, it doesn't feel like a top down kind of edict. Right. Which is really what I'm going for. And that was one of the biggest changes when I officially got a title was that I felt like I had to be more careful about hyperbole and (laughs) you know things like that because especially with people who are newer and you know don't know the hierarchy or lack thereof like Mm. i was certainly more extreme in arguments and things like that before i had any kind of title because i knew that we were all just peers and everybody else knew we were all just peers Mm -hmm. and once we started adding more people and i had a more impressive sounding title i had to worry a little bit more about what i was saying which I think was actually good for me. And realistically, I think it would be good for everybody. Yeah. Like if everybody, you know, when they were in discussions and debates, talked like what they were saying was important and that people would listen to them. Mm. And also if that like everybody they're talking about could hear them, I feel like it would generally improve discussions. Yeah, that's a challenge. And that's something that I'm trying to pay attention to in myself, because there are things like, for instance, I know there are some strong opinions about MongoDB. Uh, people like uh, there are a handful of people that have like fairly strong negative opinions about it and i find myself like just accepting that and saying it sometimes and then like i'm talking out my ass like i have no idea i've never used it in my life like i know some people that i trust that have you know think it's not so great for this sort of thing but here i am just sort of parroting this thing and i feel like that's a dangerous place to be i'm trying to not do that right and i mean on the communication subject I also try, particularly in public things, but just, you know, the more people that are listening or in general, I try to focus on the positive things. Like um, instead of talking about technologies I don't like, I will try to focus on the ones I do. Like I think that Postgres is awesome. I think that the Heroku Postgres offering is particularly well done. Mm -hmm. And so I'll try to push people there instead of trying to draw them from MongoDB. Mm -hmm. Like especially since there are a lot of, you know, curiosity and emotional things that go along with those decisions. Totally. So like, you know, I have opinions about technology choices, but there's a degree to which like I'm not going to convince somebody not to use MongoDB or whatever. You know what I mean? Like if that's the the thing they're interested in or what speaks to them, like they're going to try it out. And even if one of those things ends up just being objectively bad, sometimes you have to learn that for yourself. Yeah. And all you're doing is setting yourself up to be a jerk and say, I told you so later. Mm -hmm. Prohibition didn't work. People well, are going to sneak in those alternate databases. Some people say it didn't work. I think it's coming back. It's going to swing the other way. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> back to prohibition. <laughs> Is the, wow. You, so you, you really don't take it that seriously when you say you're not going to make like uh, strong statements about things. Well, it's fine if I laugh afterwards. I see. Nice. So one of the things that we changed recently was we added a chief design officer. Mm-hmm. So previously it was kind of like, yeah, you're in charge of the technical, maybe design-ish stuff too, kind of in a way. But now we have someone like has like a seat at the table that's, purely in the design side Mm -hmm. that's sort of a nice change i think oh yeah i agree um and it's something we've wanted for a while and it's just it's difficult you have to do it just right you know you need to make sure that you pick somebody organically and it's somebody who's interested in the job and is dedicated to the company Mm -hmm. and um you know one of the problems we're trying to fix by having a chief design officer is we want there to be parity between development and design Mm -hmm. one of the things that's like i don't know if it's unique but certainly rare at thoughtbot is that we have um, a design team and a development team that work together as equals. And it's not like, you know, we're a bunch of programmers who outsource for mock-ups or we're a design agency that will hire somebody to, you know, back something with Drupal when they need the parts to move. Yep. 
And so we wanted that to be re- reflected in the entire structure, but it, it's difficult because, you know, at the beginning, the company was founded by developers. And so it takes a long time to create that kind of parity. And so, you know, we had a smaller pool of designers to choose from and yep. it just took a while to get it set up. But now that it is there, it's just, it's obviously better. And it's, it's definitely better for me, like to have a corresponding design director yeah, I'm sure. similar to my job. There was a point at which, you know, somebody asked me if I should be involved in some of the like design leadership discussions. And I, I feel like the answer is pretty obviously that I should not be involved. There mm-hmm. would be a programmer telling a bunch of designers how to do their job or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like even acting as a moderator in that kind of situation can be difficult. It's interesting that we, I guess maybe it's just because of the, the heritage of the company, but it seems like it's much harder to hire designers than developers. It feels like our pipeline for developers just tends to be more full for people that want to come here. Right. I mean, our brand is definitely strongest in, you know, Ruby and Rails specifically. Yeah. And, you know, we've built a reputation and we're, I think it continues to get stronger. Like um, Bourbon was really helpful in getting the word out. It's also difficult because there are a lot of different kinds of designers Mm. and it's not as easy for us to specify what we want. Like when we say we're looking for a Rails developer, Generally, developers know what that means, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there are a lot of different kinds of developers and, you know, algorithms people and products people and different languages. But if you say Rails developer, people are like, okay, web, Ruby, probably has something to do with startups, but, you know, we probably all have iPhones. But (laughs) if you say, like, I'm looking for a designer, it's like, oh, sorry, sorry, a web designer. Oh, a designer who's interested in UX? I'm not sure that is. Right. Like... Who also, yeah, who does HTML and CSS and these things. and Right. And so I think it took, us a, it took us a while to figure out what kind of designer we were looking for, and that's evolved over time. And so um, certainly it's been a challenge. But I, I think that it's like we've tar- started to get momentum, and the, especially with some of the newer offices starting off with a better even ratio. Right. Um, the team is really starting to you know, build itself up. Mm-hmm. I should have Kyle on here, our design officer. Yeah, that'd be good. You you touched on this a little bit earlier, but you were saying um, you mentioned something about consulting, and I wrote down this question that we talked about last week, which is uh, my favorite consulting question, which is just should we do this, or why are we doing this? Right, <laughs> and the power of just be like, hold on, uh, we're building this thing, but why are we building this thing, or and should we in fact build this thing? Right, I, I had joked. Um, I think it was last week. I was joking that we should have somebody, maybe like a rotating role whose job it is is to just follow every project and get notified of every pull request and every ticket update and just go into the thread and go do you really need to do this <laughs> just like you need that constant voice like totally. certainly as a consultant but i think really is anybody who's building things it's just so easy and fun to build a lot of software yes and like you know fixing bugs or modifying things or spending a lot of time to figure out what's you know quite wrong with a certain interaction and then tweaking the code to fix it that's not as much fun as just writing a lot of software. <laughs> and so as developers who are, you know, hopefully excited about software, we're always tempted to do this. Like whenever somebody comes up with a problem, it's like, I can totally write a program for this. Yep, absolutely. Or when somebody thinks of a feature, it's like, I know exactly what design pattern I'm going to use. <laughs> yes. And you need to have that other voice. It's like, do you really, do you need to do this? Like, yeah. yes, it would be an opportunity to try out MongoDB, but do you actually need to store these whatever documents in this product? Right. Do you need to do this at all? Or if you do really need to do this, is there a, a really simple way that you can do a first pass at this that's going to be much easier? 
Right. And so like for me, for example, right now, I have to be careful about not using a monad for everything. <laughs> monad and uh, Docker containers. I'm <laughs> just like every problem I can solve. One of those. Well, why don't we talk about that if it's going to solve everything? Sure. So you get, you're, uh, you're pretty into Haskell. I have been uh, for the past few years. I've been messing around with Haskell a lot. And like yeah. the more I do it, the more I like it. But also the more I do it when I'm working in other languages and things, I start to see like this could be simpler. This would be simpler in Haskell. Mm-hmm. And that sounds kind of infuriating. Yeah, it's a little infuriating. You can never be 100% in the place you want all of the time. You know, in Rails, for example, when I was doing object-oriented, so I'm still doing object-oriented stuff a lot, but when I'm doing object-oriented things, I frequently wish that more people around me were interested in inversion of control. Mm. And like it's one of those things that's hard to just kind of do by yourself a little bit. Like Either it's inverted or it's not. And so frequently I'll be sending something up and I'll get to that one place where it's like, this would be so easy if these dependencies were passed in. And I just know that's not feasible in this architecture. Do you have a, a good like starting resource for people that are trying to read about that? Inversion of control? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know you've talked about it on Upcase a decent amount. Yeah. I think the issue... So, so subscribe to Upcase. <laughs> yeah. Weekly iteration. Uh, Ruby Science, is there anything in there? Yeah, there's definitely some stuff in Ruby Science. Okay, or you can buy Ruby Science, which is an ebook. But there are not a lot of um, there great. aren't a lot of people doing it in Ruby and Rails in general. Yeah, uh, and and if you look at something like Java, where people do it a lot, like you really wouldn't do it that way. The mm-hmm. experience would be totally different. The tools and approach would be different. So like some of the principles apply, but looking at Java, for example, is, um, I don't think would be fruitful. Hmm. What's can you give a thirty second idea of what inversion of control is, maybe? Ooh, uh, so inversion of control is the idea that in object-oriented programming, uh, you don't build your dependencies in a class. So instead of you know having a car that builds an engine and then builds a, I don't know, whatever else cars have. I don't really like cars. But you <laughs> instead have a car object that accepts all of the things it's going to interact with as parameters in its constructor. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is you invert control because instead of the car controlling what its components will be, whatever builds the car controls what the car's components will be and you just take that as far as you can and so you get to this top layer where it's like all right now i have to figure out all the components yep so basically you never see new you never like have like a class name dot new inside a inside a object right you try to reference constants and class names as little as possible right i'm just going to assume i'm going to all my dependencies are going to be passed in when i'm initialized and i'll have them there already someone else is going to handle them right but you keep pushing that up until eventually you have you're somewhere, right? Yeah. You're either at, in Rails, probably a controller, in like Java world, a container possibly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did an experiment, you sort of did an experiment about uh, building a container, a version of control container for Rails. Mm-hmm. We used that for the exercises app for Upcase, which you get access to if you're an Upcase subscriber, by the way. <laughs> so if you want to see this crazy version of control container gem plus what it looks like when you invert all your dependencies in a Rails app, you can subscribe and we'll give you access to the code. And I think it works. It's one of the things that just does work well for me. The problem is that it's the same problem I've had with my other pet peeve in Ruby, which is nil, mm. which is that, like, sure, I can write the same abstractions that we have in other languages like, you know, Swift or Haskell or anything and deal with nothingness that way in Ruby. But everybody else is doing something different, mm-hmm. which makes it difficult. Like, when that kind of thing, you don't just say, like, oh, I'm just not going to use nil. You either use it and embrace it 
or you start a movement to not use it because you need to get everybody else around you and all the frameworks you use. You know what right. I mean? Like it's so built into Ruby and the idea of doing class oriented stuff is so built into Rails mm-hmm. that that was the problem I had with the, um, you know, full inversion of control approach it was not so much that I was fighting inversion of control, but that once I started doing things differently than Rails, sometimes I was fighting Rails. Mm-hmm. And it's it's solvable, but it's a lot more work than just doing inversion of control from the beginning. Yep. So Haskell's approach to nil is pretty different, or mm-hmm. approach to nothingness is pretty different than the way your average Ruby programmer would, would tackle it. Right. So Haskell has a data type called maybe, mm-hmm. which is either just something or nothing. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to explain why it's so different because it sounds pretty similar. And like semantically, it's the same thing. Like something is either an instance of a user or it's nil. Mm-hmm. I guess there are a few differences, but the immediate important difference is that just a user does not act like a user. Mm-hmm. And so you can't make the mistake where you don't realize something can be nil. You can't just pass nil for anything in Haskell. Right. If you have just a user, you need to actually unwrap it and get at the user. Right. And Haskell has a lot of you know facilities for working with that. Like a more familiar thing with some people might be the new optional type in Swift. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, if something is optional, it has to be marked as such. And they have the question mark syntax and the exclamation point syntax for working with those to make them more pleasant. But it makes it so that when you compile, you can tell, like, yes, I did actually check to see if all of those things were there. Yep. This is turning into a bit of a um, me pitching a bunch of things show. But uh, Pat, <laughs> uh, Pat Brisbane's book, uh, Maybe Haskell, uh, is about the maybe type class. Maybe, yeah, it's a data type. Maybe data type, uh, which is super good and goes into this in depth, uh, and I really enjoyed it. But sort of the sales pitch to that is like, imagine Ruby if there was no more, no method error. Like, imagine if you never got that again. You were like basically impossible. That's kind of like roughly the promise over there, I think, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of cool. You, we, touched, uh, we talked about uh, discussing strong type systems versus unit tests mm-hmm. and whether or not one lets you avoid some of the other. Yeah. I guess to back up a little bit, in Ruby, I've been you know somewhat involved in the testing movement, and I've been personally doing 100% TDD in Ruby for like uh, eight, nine years now. Mm-hmm. So testing is pretty ingrained in me. As far as like my skill level, like how it compares to other skills that I have, I'm pretty good at it. Like it's one of my stronger skills. I do it all the time, but also it sort of sucks. Mm-hmm. Like. <laughs> You have to write twice as much code. Sometimes it's really nice, like you get feedback quickly. But, you know, there have to be better ways to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Like maintaining all the tests and running the tests. And then you do so much testing support infrastructure. Like it is really nice compared to having nothing, right? right? Like I do TDD because I think it's better for me than when I'm just writing code and sort of hoping that it works. And like I've never found retroactively adding tests to be effective. Hmm. It hasn't worked for me. And so, like, I've been doing this for years, but it's not because I think it's, like, the final form of software, and now that we've found it, we'll just do it forever, and it's the best. Mm. It's because not having it is unworkable. So, like, if you sort of come at it from that attitude, you're always looking at ways that you could replace it. And when I've been working in Haskell, I've noticed that I don't have the same feelings of uncertainty or, you know, the same stress level. Mm-hmm. which is really what it's about for me. Like you can talk about correctness of software or evaluating things quickly or iterating quickly, whatever. But a lot of the practices that I follow have to do with my stress level mm-hmm. when I'm developing, like how many things I have to keep in my head, 
how certain I am that something is taken care of, whether or not I have to remember a lot of things or track a lot of things in a to-do list or, you know, go out of my way a lot to be defensive in coding. Mm-hmm. Like when I jump into one of those code bases that has like try and rescue everywhere, it's like, oh God, just everything feels like it's going to fall down. Mm-hmm. And so writing tests and trying to be less defensive is about reducing that feeling of, you know, uncertainty and stress. Like I do think it probably also reduces bugs and mm-hmm. I could probably make an argument financially like oh you don't want bugs you should do testing but if i'm going to be honest it's an emotional reason like it stresses me out to have software that works that way and mm-hmm. so i don't want to develop it that way but in haskell i found that i cannot write tests and still have that lower level of stress because it's compiled and the type system is rich and expressive enough mm-hmm. that you can write out scenarios such that realistically the way you wrote it and the way you expect it to work you can't have made most of the mistakes that you make in Ruby. That's so huge. It really is. Like, it sounds too good to be true. Like, if it if it works, it's like, okay, well, we if our if our code to test ratio is like we're writing twice as much code because we or you know if if we have a hundred lines of of code, that might be a two hundred line test file, and we can just not do that, and the type system will do it for us. Like, that's sound. That's a pretty good sales pitch. Right. You can cut out a lot of code that way. Like, you cut out the test code, but also you, you cut out all the libraries you need to use for testing. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's not a hundred percent. Uh, the type systems have been evolving and Haskell's is much richer than some of the other ones that people might be familiar with from like, you know, a lot of people learned object oriented static programming and C plus plus or Java. Yeah. And those type systems are like fairly shallow, you know, Mm -hmm. Java finally got generics, but even that is not amazing. And so when people think of static typing, they tend to think of that situation, which was not great. Right. (laughs) But you know, Ruby's alternative is having no type system at all which allows you to work very quickly in some ways, but it also means you always have a ton of unknowns as a developer. And it means that the code gives you very little information. So like when you look at a method in Ruby and it accepts a user, it's like, well, that's probably an instance of the user class, right? So that's your first instinct, but then you're like, oh, wait, no, I should be careful. Everything can be nil at any time, so it also might be nil. Also, sometimes for some reason, things are like arrays when I don't expect them to be, so I should probably check for an array. Also, it could be a hash that has user stuff in it. Or maybe it's something decorating a user, or it could be some subclass of user, or like a guest, or you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like suddenly it's like the simple thing that's like, I should know this is a user and I can call name on it is like, actually, there are 40,000 possibilities. Right. Write some tests. Yeah. And an equivalent thing in Haskell, you would get either an argument to a function that is just a user, it can't possibly be anything else, and you know exactly what that is, or an explicit thing that abstractly tells you, like, this is an instance of some type class that responds to this, or it's one of several possible types. You have to quantify them all when you describe the method. Yep. And it's really nice, you know, when you jump into a piece of code and you're like, oh, what does this function do? By the time you're done reading the type, you usually know what it does. Yeah. Because it's like, I take a list of users and I return a user, like, already you know half of what it does. Right. And that type signature is checked. It's enforced. It's not like, oh, someone wrote that, oh, this is a thing that takes a list of users and returns a user. And like, that's a comment that who knows if it's still true. Right. The sponsor of today's show is DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean provides simple and fast cloud hosting built for developers. I'm a developer. You're a developer. That means it's built for us, which is exciting because it's custom built because we're developers. You know, we use DigitalOcean on Upcase. It hosts our Git server. Uh, It's been great. It was easy to set up, and we haven't thought about it since, and that's perfect. That's what I'm into in for- terms of hosting. Uh, DigitalOcean is highly scalable to meet the demands of a rapidly growing application or business. 
you can resize your existing droplets, which are DigitalOcean's uh, individual hosty things, to meet your needs as you grow, which is awesome. All the servers are built on hex core machines. I don't know what a hex core machine is, but I bet it's good. It has dedicated ECC RAM and RAID SSD storage, which are all letters that I bet are important uh, and probably mean a lot of things to people like you who actually want to think about hosting or not think about it and outsource it to DigitalOcean, which is a great idea. You can deploy servers in different regions. If you're like, hey, I need a server over here and a server over there, servers everywhere, and they have gigabit speeds between them and 99.99% uptime, which is a lot of uptime. So... Uh, if you're interested, head over to digitalocean.com to learn more. And when you sign up, make sure to use code GIANTROBOTS with a capital G and a capital R. I should actually say a, a giant G and a giant R when you check out, and you will get a $10 credit towards your new account. So thank you to DigitalOcean for supporting Giant Robots matching to other giant robots. And now, uh, like I said, it's not 100%. So yeah. Haskell's type system is very rich, much more rich than some of the other ones people have probably experienced, but it can't cover every situation. So, for example, one very common thing that is an issue in Haskell is uh, with lists. If you want to ask for the first item in a list, that doesn't make any sense for an empty list. But the type system in Haskell, at least the default uh, list type you get, is not rich enough to be a different type when you have no items versus one item. So you can't say, like, I am a function that takes a list of at least one item. Mm Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of sort of fallout that comes from that and similar issues. Mm -hmm. And the Haskell community is working on them, and there are some solutions and best practices around this so that it's not like a colossal problem the way Nil is in Ruby. But there are also experimental languages like Agda and Idris that go further with things like dependent typing to try and eliminate some of those uncertainties. Mm -hmm. And so it's not as though like my original pitch of like Haskell obsolete testing is just that would be a lie. Right. Um, but it does eliminate a whole class of tests. Like you don't need to worry about the types lining up. So like that problem where it's like, oh, I mocked everything out, but those weren't real. Like that can't happen. Mm. And um, a lot of the unit tests you would write to get quick feedback you get from the type system. Yep. Um, and so it does eliminate a lot of tests you would have to write. And I am actually hopeful that as we progress more and more with type systems, like the ones they're experimenting with, that eventually it will become so powerful that it wouldn't be worth it to have a testing system at all. Like, yes, there would be a few cases that you, you know, theoretically you might want to write a test for, Mm -hmm. but they'd be so few and little value that it wouldn't be worth it to maintain the testing software. Hmm. And I, I do think that if people go in that direction of richer types, like, you know, Apple embraced this with Swift and uh, Rust is really big in this. If you keep going in that direction, then we will write fewer and fewer tests because you can sort of just write the code and be confident that you are writing what you think you are. And having a computer check it as opposed to you manually checking it with right manually writing tests to check it. Right, exactly. Having it be automated checked when you compile, yeah. but also providing that extra information to the person reading it um, that you know the argument is what you think it is. It does return what you think it does. There isn't an infinite number of exploding possibilities. Some of which are, you know, very likely. Like some of those things I said in Ruby are not common. But I've encountered all of those things, and particularly like the nil case and the subclass case are really common that it's like, oh, this said user, but actually it's a nil. Mm-hmm. Nil does not have a name. Yeah. So we have this thing where we think we, you, can write, you can write fewer tests in Haskell. There are abstractions available in Haskell that I think just don't exist in Ruby. Um, why aren't we using it more? Haskell? Yeah. We as, we as meaning ThoughtBot. Right. Why aren't we? Will we? 
you want, wish we could? Do you wish we were? We are starting to use it more and more, and I'm still hopeful that it can be, uh, you know, a serious tool that we use for uh, consulting projects and everything. But the issue is that you can't take a language or even just its libraries in a vacuum and decide its value. Mm. Like a big part of any language is the ecosystem, the community around it. For sure. And so, like, if you look at Rails by itself, forgetting ThoughtBot, like that is a big ecosystem. It's a huge group of people who are working together collectively towards building web applications. Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of shared motivation and technology and infrastructure there. Uh, but also, you know, ThoughtBot historically has been a company of Rails developers working with designers. So, you know, making this sort of pivot that, like, you know, we use other things is big. And then getting everybody to agree on the same thing is impossible, especially when you don't want to have the kind of company where you just direct people, like, all right, everybody's learning go or you get out, right? Right. So, you know, it takes a lot of time to gain momentum around something like that. And realistically, like, it doesn't make sense to switch technologies. So we are incorporating some Haskell. Um, we have a, a few services running using it, and I do hope to do it on some consulting projects. But it's not my aim to replace Rails. Mm -hmm. It's just that I think, you know, for a lot of things, we could and should be using something richer. And, you know, I also remain hopeful that something like Rust or something else will evolve and become powerful that has some of the things I like about Ruby that has a more pragmatic approach in terms of community, but also has a strong type system. Hmm. If you could snap your fingers and, and train everyone here to be like as a proficient in Haskell as they are in Ruby, if, if you could make that happen instantly, would you then be comfortable with saying like, okay, we're going to, we're doing this from now on Haskell? Not until we've tried it for a bit. Yeah. Anyway, you know, like I've written, I don't know how many Rails applications, like more than a hundred. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I've written a bunch of Haskell. I'm really excited about it. I've written a few web apps. Yeah. But I don't have the emotional experience with it to say that I like it long term. You know, like I used a lot of technologies. Ruby is the one now that I've used in the longest streak and mm -hmm. not, you know, quit my job. So, yeah, you know, that's a big endorsement. And it's one that I can't make yet for Haskell. Yep. That's so pragmatic of you. <laughs> Could you be more incendiary? Well, maybe if I, you know, get a different title. <laughs> uh, you're right. I'm going to ask you things about JavaScript. So tell me about Docker. Yeah. I know nothing about Docker for, as a background. Okay, good. So I can tell you anything I want. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's a language, right? <laughs> Docker is, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Strongly typed. Uh, it's lazy. It's functional. Um, it's going to replace JavaScript, right, in the browser? What's JavaScript? Uh, it's like Haskell. <laughs> right, it's functional, right? Yeah. Uh, Docker is a... Hard. I'm putting you on the spot. You haven't done this yet. <laughs> right. And it's very abstract. It's one of those things that's you know difficult to explain succinctly and clearly, but I'll give it a shot. Okay. Docker is a standard and a set of tools around building containers and images and running them. Okay. And so you're probably familiar with the idea of a virtual machine yep. and images for virtual machines. Um, and, you know, I know you're familiar with Heroku yep. and hopefully some of our listeners are where in Heroku you, um, you use a build pack to package up a slug. You can then untar on a bunch of machines and run. Mm -hmm. And Docker is like really similar to that slug concept. And it's hoping to achieve a lot of the you know isolation and portability that you would get with a virtual machine, but without the really heavy weight of you know having a hypervisor and all that craziness. Mm -hmm. And so the base idea that I've worked with the most in Docker is this imaging, this image system yeah. that works with layers. So it's almost like um, Git for installing software. And oh. so you you build some kind of a base image and you start with it. 
Uh, so say, for example, you start with like a pretty empty Ubuntu based image. Mm -hmm. Then you can extend that image by adding another layer, which runs a command. And then it will save the result of that as a layer. Okay. So like I need Ubuntu and I also need it to have Git and Ruby and whatever. Right. So you start out with a base image. That's just This is just a base Ubuntu install. You could like boot it up and run bash. Yeah. But there's nothing in it. Yeah. So then you extend that to have a new image that's like, all right, we have Git in there, so you can pull software. And then you extend that to have Ruby, so it's like, all right, now I can run things from Git with Ruby. And so you build up these base images, and then at the end you have the ability to actually build an image for your application. Okay. And once the image is built, you can ship it and run it anywhere else that runs Docker. Okay. So, But it's not a virtual machine. It's that's not. the part that confuses me. Right. And so I don't know a lot of the really technical details, yeah. but there's this concept called a container um, and probably like the most widely known one outside of like what Docker itself uses and may still use under the hood somewhere is the um, LXC stuff, okay. which is a piece of Linux, which is like you can basically make a group of processes that have special permissions and access within the same running you know, kernel and process manager and everything. Hmm. There are a few different oh, things that I'm not really familiar with, like C groups and things like that that are involved. But the idea is like instead of isolating an entire operating system with a fake development system and all our device system and all of that, mm -hmm. fake hardware, yeah. we're going to just isolate certain processes oh, so that they can only interact with each other. And they can't but do kind of, like, But kind of sh like shoehorn it into the running operating system. Right. But it's not, I don't know, that makes it sound sort of like duct tape. It's, well, but I'm, you know, it's a little bit in nightmare, an elegant way. You know? It's open source. It's fabulous technology. <laughs> um, but so like, so like a, a virtual machine, like you said, you're running this thing. And so I'm running an OS, OS 10 uh, natively. And then I boot up like a fake Windows. I, build a, I boot up a virtual machine with Windows in it. And from Windows point of view, it's got, it's, it, it's the only thing on the machine. It can access all this stuff, but it's all basically faked out. Right. Um, so and you have to figure out everything. You need right. an entire image that has everything that Windows could use. Yeah. Whereas in container land, the idea is that most of your services don't live within the container. So instead of starting a virtual machine that contains, um, you know, your Rails process, all the Ruby stuff you need, a database running, a fake file system for that, yeah, you would run a different container for your database. And huh. Docker has uh, facilities for exposing services and ports between running containers. Yeah. And so the idea is like, I have a container. It, it needs to connect to Postgres. That has to be running somewhere. And probably I want like a logging service somewhere or whatever. I'm just going to run this process. It has all the software it needs to run the process. And you just give me the ability to connect to the ports for Postgres and the logger. Hmm. And then you can deploy that in any system where those things will be provided. Gotcha. It is a little related to um, virtual machines for now, particularly for you OSX users. Mm -hmm. because in order to run Docker, you need to run on an operating system that supports containers. Okay. And OSX does not. Okay. And so if you want to run Docker, what you have to do is run a virtual machine. <laughs> <laughs> ah. uh, but the good news is that instead of running a bunch of virtual machine images and bootstrapping them with something like Vagrant, you can just have one virtual machine that runs Docker, and then you run all the Docker images from there. Okay. And there are, because it's so, uh, there's so much less involved in the virtual machine layer, there are a decent number of tools um, like Boot to Docker. And there's another new one I can't remember the name of that sort of abstract away and automate some of the, you know, details of running the Docker service itself. Hmm. Okay. So this is nice if, like, let's say we had a Rails app that had a really crazy environment and it needed, we could ship that whole environment as a Docker 
container image something something right certainly if you have like weird dependencies it's useful yeah but actually i think with before too long we'll be using docker or you know if something replaces it that on all of our projects hmm. even if it's a really common set of dependencies mm -hmm. because like it's not actually like rails apps are super easy to set up and run it's just that we're so used to all the problems we can fix most of them quickly yeah but things like you know ruby different ruby versions somebody using a different ruby version manager whether or not you actually accidentally have a gem installed globally using sudo mm. um different versions of zsh or bash you know what i mean like all those different things you have to worry about in the environment or like am i running postgres on a socket or a local port those are questions that should not really be involved in the development of a rails application yep but you need all those services so they are involved right. docker allows us to isolate all of those parts within the container and the container image hmm. so we'd have sort of a known good setup for running rails apps that we would all sort of develop under right like the idea of like it works on my machine at least you would restrict that to works in this container yeah and it won't matter what machine you're running it on huh that does sound good cool all right let's do that haskell and docker everywhere done <laughs> finger snapped decree made <laughs> um you know what i wish i wish you would tweet more yeah, you want me to tweet more? I want Joe Knowledge hot off the Twitter presses. I mostly read Twitter. I don't uh, tweet as I much. I know. You're a, you're a leecher. Yeah, I mostly read Twitter and things like that when I'm commuting. And I don't know if it's just the subway system here or what, but I tend to have a lot of negative thoughts when I'm commuting. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure people would say that means that I should get a remote job and work from home, but uh, yeah. whatever. Anyway, most of my thoughts when I'm using Twitter are negative, and I don't like to tweet negative things. Yeah, I have the, so. same, I have the same personal rule. It's so tempting, though. It really is. Like, you're just mad about something, and it's like, I have a box where I can put that. Yeah, it feels good to let it out. Right. Just throw it out there, even though it does no good. Really. Right. It's like punching someone. Like, it feels good for a second, and then you're like, eh, just, I, I feel kind of bad. don't really contribute there. Yeah. I've, I've kind of wanted to start just like a complaining version of my normal Twitter, which is just like, this is where all the, like, the, the mean thoughts would just go. But then what if it becomes more popular than nice Twitter? Right. Which it probably will. It probably will, like, right away. <laughs> For some reason, people love retweeting they do. really negative things. Oh, they do. They super do. Just ask. Well, no. I was, that was, I was almost it negative. Almost. I almost did it. <laughs> I almost did it. But I also have a positive podcast. I'm going to say nice things about people, too, on the podcast. You're going to San Francisco. I am. That's cool. You're leaving on a jet plane. Yeah, in, like, an hour. Yeah. Do you know if you'll be back again? Uh, yeah, I should be. Okay. What are you going to do out there? Uh, I'm going to pair with people mostly. Yeah. Um, it's good to, you know, interact with the other team directly. Sometimes we have a nice office out there. Mm -hmm. San Francisco has great coffee. Mm. I drink a lot of coffee. You should bring back some coffee. I will. For the office. I might. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly with that tweak, it becomes not going to happen. No. Well, I'm going to bring back coffee for me. I for know. Sure. If yeah. I have any room left over in my suitcase. Bring a bigger, bigger one. I might, yeah. What's the customs limit on importing coffee? Well, I'm staying within the country, so... I just went to ship a thing to a friend of mine who lives in Hong Kong, okay. and the person at FedEx did not know what she was doing. She was clearly very. She told me she was new, and she did not know what was going on. And so, in the uh, the thing which puts like what's there, she's like, "What is this? What are these?" It's like, "Uh, like toiletries." Like he he can't get the deodorant he wants, and blah blah blah. So I got a bunch of CVS stuff. And so when she was showing me like the bill of lading or whatever, the thing that says what's in the box, it says toiletries, comma has, and I was like. 
is there any chance has stands for hazardous? And she's like, no, 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 that, no, it's fine. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I feel, I don't know though. And so I was like, can you just look at it one more time? And she's like, see, look, here it is in my system. And I was like, will you just scroll down? And then there was toiletries non-has. <laughs> and I was like, let's go with non-has, you know? She tried to sell me this thing. She's like, oh no, that just could, that could mean anything. It could mean like body wash. And I was like, but then why does it say H-A-Z? Like, that doesn't, you're not making any sense right now. So I almost tried to ship something through Hong Kong Customs that was like, hazardous toiletries. What's the fee for that? I, I don't know, but I have a hunch it wouldn't have gotten there. Yeah. Did it get there? Uh, I just sent today. So, so probably not. So yeah, who knows? <laughs> but, well, now they're non-hazardous toiletries. So Right. Which sounds sus- suspect as well. It so, does, yeah. Like, why do you have to say that they're non-hazardous? Right. What like, is a hazard? What, what, are you, what are you hiding? Do you know how much, how much do you think it costs to ship like a medium-sized box to Hong Kong? To Hong Kong? Yeah. Oh, man. Medium-sized box? Like $500? <laughs> Come on. Uh, Maybe, uh, no, it's like 9 by 17 as a box. It's $198. $198? Yeah. yeah that's, it's not cheap. Yeah. I mean, that seems crazy. I guess I have to fly it there. It's a long flight. No, it doesn't probably go on a boat. Oh, we still have boats, right? Wow. Do you think it goes on a boat? I would. It's going to be there next year. You put it on a boat. I put it on a boat, yeah. We have a lot of boats going back and forth, you know. That's an interesting question. Now I don't. Now I don't know. Right, they put them in shipping containers like Docker. Yeah, exactly. Immutable shipping containers. Right. Oh man, let's let's wrap this up. All right, <laughs> that's, that's a good place to stop. All right. Uh, thanks for coming on. I yeah. appreciate you dropping it by before you left for the the West Coast. It was a pleasure as always. Yeah, and uh, when this releases, we'll will know for sure whether or not you have in fact brought us coffee or not. Yes. Yes. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 155. Thank you for listening.